On this Pentecost Sunday, we're going to read the story of Pentecost as we find it in Acts chapter 2, with verses 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And our text this morning is verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what comes to mind when you hear the word church? Boys and girls, what do you think about? Maybe for some of you younger members, you think about the peppermints that your mom hands out during the service. Or maybe if you're a little bit older, You get a couple of them at the beginning and you have to space them out yourself. Takes a lot of self-control, doesn't it? Maybe some of you think about singing. You've learned a psalm or a hymn at school and you wonder whether or not your psalm or your hymn will be chosen for that Sunday morning. And for you adults, maybe the, the church evokes a positive connotation. Maybe you think it's good for my family to be here. I'm glad we don't live too far away. I like this church. I like the building. I like the people. And maybe for some of you, you, you're not quite thinking about it that way. Maybe the word church does not evoke that many positive thoughts for you right now. And we might all have our own thoughts on what the church is or the first thing that comes to mind when you say that word. But for all of those, that's not actually what the church is about. Today we commemorate Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and they had 3,000 converts in one day. That's more than the population of Mundajong, Serpentine, and most of Jaredale put together. That early church had a lot of energy. So if you said the word church to believers 
during that first Pentecost Sunday, what would they have thought? They would have thought that they were right in the middle of God's work. They would have said, church, that is where God is at work. That is where prophecy is fulfilled. That is where you see history coming to its culmination. And they were awed. Verse 43 says that they were awed. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So whatever else you might have thought church was the one thing that you wanted to be a part of, you did not want to miss. Now today, we perhaps don't quite get the same, of, same kind of reaction anymore. We certainly don't see these kinds of signs and wonders. And the question becomes, what is the meaning of Pentecost for us today? This event that happened almost 2,000 years ago, what is the meaning of Pentecost for us today? Some would say, well, Pentecost is meant to be imitated. So in charismatic or Pentecostal circles, they try to reproduce the signs such as speaking in tongues. As people in the Reformed tradition, we reject that for reasons which will become clear later on. But the question then becomes, what is Pentecost meant to be for us today? What is the message of Pentecost for the church today? And that's the question we'll try to answer this morning. And we'll see that it means complete forgiveness for God's people and complete renewal for God's people. So let's look at verse 5. Verse 5 of our passage says that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These were descendants of the Jews who had been exiled in past centuries by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The um, exile of the Assyrians took place in 722 in stages and the Babylonians in 586 before Christ. And, and these people were taken away and relocated, and many of them stayed there. But some of their descendants had come back to Jerusalem to live there. It was considered to be a good thing to do if you could afford it to retire in Jerusalem. And of course, there were many others who had come as pilgrims with the Feast of Pentecost. And they were, it says, devout people. That means that they were pious. They took their Bible seriously. So when Peter begins to preach to them, they already know the Bible. They already know the prophet Joel that he quotes from. And Peter is telling them that these things that they're seeing around them are a fulfillment of the last days. The last days is... is the last age, the age before the final judgment. And that age has begun with Pentecost. He says that Jesus has begun Pentecost by pouring out the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, this is the Jesus that you crucified. You people crucified him. So the last days have begun without you. Now you can only imagine the sense of horror that these people would have felt. These were devout Jews, people who took their faith seriously, but many of them had not believed the things that Jesus said about himself. They may not have personally nailed Jesus to the cross, but everybody knew what had happened. Everybody had an opinion on it. And quite possibly, many of the people that were there were part of the mob that had called for his death. And even if they were not, they were still guilty by association. They were guilty by virtue of the fact that they were part of the Jewish people who had rejected the Christ. And they realize now that this was wrong. You think about that. The most religious people that you could possibly imagine 
who were also at the same time the most profoundly separated from God. Imagine for a moment what it would be like to come to that realization that you have made a mistake of this magnitude, that you are part of this injustice. Think of the words of Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way and they've crucified the son. What will happen to them now? One thing is clear. God has gone on without them. The lines of the church have been redrawn and they are on the outside. Bear in mind that in the Old Testament, the Jewish nation was the church. There were sometimes outsiders who joined, like Rahab, for example, in Joshua 6, verse 25. But for the most part, the church was limited to the boundaries of Israel. Israel was the original root. Israel was the true church in the beginning. Consider what we confess in Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism. I believe that the Son of God, from the beginning out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And we confess in the Nicene Creed, the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. That was before Pentecost. So it would be wrong to say that the church began at Pentecost. But the lines of the church were redrawn at Pentecost. The church is no longer limited just to the Jews. The Holy Spirit no longer worked only among them, but prepared to go out to all nations. And so these people, these very religious people who were hearing Peter preach, they're confronted one more time with this question, who is the Christ? Who is Jesus? Who is, who is he really? And that's the most important question that anyone can ever answer in his own life. And it is a question that goes out to us every week. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? The Bible says he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord of the universe. Ephesians 1 says that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. No matter what power you think about, Jesus is so much higher than that. God has placed him so much higher than that. And God has put all things under his feet. That's Jesus. You think about how unimaginably powerful he must be. Think about how incredibly great he is. So the focus of Pentecost is not actually so much on the Holy Spirit as it is on Christ Ephesians 1 goes on to say that God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits all in all. Now, here's where Pentecost does come into the picture. Christ is the head of the church, and the church is his body. So Pentecost is about the spirit of Christ beginning to live in the church. And we need that. Without the Holy Spirit, we do not know who Christ is. Without the Holy Spirit, we might know about Christ, but he cannot change us. He cannot have communion with us. He cannot dwell in us. So the Holy Spirit is the one who applies God's work of redemption to us. Through the Holy Spirit, God himself dwells in the church. And so all of the benefits that we have as believers are conveyed to us through the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is critically important. Through the Spirit, Christ communes with His church. The church collectively is His body. And He lives in us as individuals as well. He lives in us through faith. But the Lord can only have one body. He does not have multiple bodies that are disconnected from each other. He has only one body, and that body is the church. And that is why all all believers are called to find the true church and to join it. So these Jewish people who hear Peter speak realize that they are no longer in the church. The boundaries have changed. They are outside of it. They are burdened by a grievous sin. These were the people who were supposed to welcome the Messiah, and instead they have crucified him. Can you imagine what that would have been like to come to that realization? Imagine if you had joined in slandering someone who turned out to be completely innocent. Imagine the sinking realization that you were on the wrong side. And imagine that you dug in, even though you knew better. Now imagine how much worse it was for these people who shared their responsibility for condemning the Christ, the Son of God Himself. They were cut to the heart, says our text. They were absolutely gutted. They were crushed. They had no idea what to do with themselves, where to go with their guilt. And that realization, by the way, is central to true repentance. A genuine grief over sin is key. It's reflected in Psalm 51, for instance, also in the New Testament in different places. Genuine repentance is characterized by horror over your personal sin. It's painful. You have a sense of grief and sadness. So, how do you get to that point? By listening to the Word of God. As Hebrews 4 verse 12 puts it, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So the degree of your repentance shows the degree to which you take the Word of God seriously. If you take the Word of God seriously, it will convict you of sin. It will drive you to repentance. You will come to that question, what am I supposed to do? So, what is repentance in its essence? If you look at our text, Peter says that they are to repent and to be baptized. What does it mean? Well, there are different, in the original language, there are different words that are translated as repentance. The word used here refers to a total change of heart and attitude, resulting in a change of behavior. So you realize after the fact how wrong you were, you completely see the situation in new eyes, with new eyes from a new perspective, and then you, you change your behavior accordingly. And you look at how, how decisive Peter is here. This is really quite quite striking and actually very moving. He, he brings a word to these people. He brings them to a point where they acknowledge their guilt. They say, what should we do? And then he tells them right away what they need to do. He doesn't, he doesn't harangue them. He doesn't continue to push them down. No, he says to them, you need to repent. And that call in and of itself is grace. That's where the grace begins. The call to repent is grace in and of itself. 
It is the same thread of grace you find through the whole Bible. Think of the words of Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while I may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. That's grace. That call to repent and to come back is God's grace, God's love to his people and to us as well. And it's only possible by the power of Christ, that grace. The only reason God can abundantly pardon is by taking away sins through the blood of Christ. And when he does, those sins are abundantly pardoned, liberally forgiven, completely taken away, never held against you again. Isn't that amazing? Is that not an amazing thing to have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Christ? And that's what Peter says to them, repent, repent, this is for you, and be baptized. Now, baptism was something that was already known by the Jews in those days, but it was something that was reserved for unbelievers. If you were, well, not an unbeliever, but a proselyte, so someone who was an unbeliever, a Gentile, a non-Jew, who, who comes to the faith, and then as part of his initiation into the Jewish faith, he, he would baptize himself. It's not that he would be baptized. He would do it to himself. It was a ritual washing. It was never something that a Jew did. And it was purely for people that were coming into the faith. That was what they were used to. And now Peter is saying to them, you need to be baptized yourself. It needs to be done to you. And... and um, that's very humiliating for them, actually, if you think about it. And that reinforces the idea that at this point, they are not part of God's people. The boundaries of the church have shifted. The boundaries are now drawn around Christ and everyone who belongs to him. And the way that you belong to Christ is through repentance and faith in him. And this transition is marked by baptism. Now, we should be clear, baptism is not a sign of their faith. Of course, as adults, obviously you need to believe before you get baptized. But the baptism itself is not an assurance or, or a sign of their faith primarily, but a sign of God's promise. And that's reflected in, in what Peter says as well. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the promise. Baptism is the assurance that just as water cleanses a body, so the blood of Christ cleanses them from their sin. So their baptism marks them as part of God's people. It separates them from the Jews who still refuse to believe. And that separation is very important. We read in verse 40 that with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That phrase, crooked generation, has an old pedigree. It is a reference, an allusion to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where Moses is talking about the desert generation. These Israelites that were led through the desert, and um, all of the ancestors perished in the desert, and they were in a state of continual rebellion against God, and Moses refers to them as a crooked generation, and and these were the people then, especially the parents who had rejected God and who perished because of that. And Peter is drawing a line from 
that old generation to the generation who crucified Jesus, he's saying, these are the same kinds of people. You need to separate yourself from them. And baptism still has that function today as well. We confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 34, by baptism we are received into the church of God and set apart from all other peoples and false religions. Now maybe when you were reading this passage, you wondered why does he say to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ? Because we don't actually do that, do we? We don't baptize into the name of the Son only. We baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so um, that's what Jesus commanded us to do in Matthew 28. Why is it different here? Well, the answer is what we have in Matthew 28, verse 19, is a baptismal formula. That is to say, Jesus is giving us the actual words that are to be used during baptism. But that's not what Peter is doing here. Instead, he's drawing attention again to the authority of Christ, the person who's been behind this whole narrative. Remember, the message of Pentecost is about forgiveness for God's people. And by the authority of Christ, through the blood of Christ, because of the name of Christ and the reputation of Christ, his reputation as Savior, it is through that that you can have this baptism. Complete forgiveness for God's people in the name of Christ. And that's what he is pointing to. That's the first message of Pentecost for them and for us. And the second one is complete renewal for God's people. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he goes on to say, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, you notice it's in the singular. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit himself. This gift is to be understood as the Holy Spirit himself. He's not talking about the gifts plural of the Holy Spirit, as in spiritual gifts, but he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the Holy Spirit himself. Now that presents us with another problem, doesn't it? After all, where does faith come from? My catechism student should know this. Right? Faith comes from the Holy Spirit. And we confess that in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, Article 3, without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they neither can, they neither will nor can return to God, reform their depraved nature, or prepare themselves for its reformation. So on the one hand, Peter is saying, you must repent and believe, and on the other hand, which, which is something you can only do with the Holy Spirit, and on the other hand, he then says, you will receive the Holy Spirit. How, how does that work? Well, the key to understanding this is not to look at it in the sense of a strict chronology. It is true that they cannot believe without the Holy Spirit. Nobody can. That was already true in the Old Testament before Pentecost. Think of Psalm 51 verse 11, right? What does David say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. So he, he knew as well. Bear in mind also that even the apostles themselves had already received the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. They already had faith in Christ. They didn't fully understand who he was, but they had faith in him. And then Christ appears to them in John 20, verse 22, and we read that he breathed on them. 
and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So that's an extra equipping for their office. So they already had the Holy Spirit in their lives before Pentecost. So it's not that he was absent before then. Clearly the Holy Spirit has to work in people before they're able to respond in faith to the gospel. But there's much more to the Christian life than responding in faith to the gospel. To respond in faith is a result of regeneration. To continue in faith is a result of sanctification. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, in the sense that Peter means it, is the presence of the Spirit in ongoing sanctification. In other words, he's promising complete renewal for God's people. The more you respond, the more you are enabled to be renewed. And this makes sense in our own experience as well, doesn't it? Probably most of us could not remember our own regeneration, the time when, when the Lord regenerated your heart and made you spiritually alive when you first began to believe, probably there would be very few people here who could point to an exact moment when they became aware that, that they had faith, that God was real, that he was working in their hearts. For most of us who grew up in the faith, it probably happened at some point during our childhood, probably very early on or maybe even in our teens. But you may not quite remember when, when it all started to make sense. But you certainly can be aware of your own ongoing sanctification and your own progress in, in a life of holiness. And that's what he's referring to. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in the sense of you will continue to grow in your renewal, in your sanctification. Now, obviously, what, um, what the way that we're looking at this today would be disputed by Pentecostals and Charismatics. They believe that the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, just like the apostles did. And that is actually for, for probably globally, for the, for the majority of Christians, would uh, probably, they'd probably identify as some form of evangelical or Pentecostal. And um, it would be safe to say that many of them would, would be aware of this and probably many of them would support it this idea of speaking in tongues and say that this is something that, that, that we need and that the Holy Spirit can give to us. But the thing is, this spiritual gift has been given far more importance than it should have. One thing we can say conclusively is that the modern practice of what some people would call speaking in tongues has nothing to do with what happened in Acts chapter 2. A plain reading of verse 11 of our chapter makes it clear that these tongues were simply languages, the languages that were known to the, he, to the hearers, maybe not to the speakers. We don't know whether or not the apostles themselves necessarily knew what they were speaking, but certainly the hearers were, were identifying these as normal languages. But either way, the, the point was not the tongues themselves. The point of the tongues was to draw attention to the message Remember, the ones who were listening were Jews. They'd heard the works of God before. These were people who knew their Bible. But now they heard them by people who could not have known their native language. And that was what drew their attention. You know, they weren't converted because the apostles spoke in tongues. They were amazed, but not converted at that point. Some of them were skeptical. In fact, the tongues were unnecessary in order for them to hear the gospel. Pretty much everyone was at least bilingual, if not trilingual back then. 
They would have known their native language. That would have been their mother tongue. Then they would have known Greek, the common language, and probably many spoke Aramaic, which would have been spoken in Palestine at that time. So the tongues were not necessary for conversion. They didn't lead to anyone's conversion. But the one thing they did do was make people pay attention. But what converted them was the gospel, the message of Pentecost, the message of complete forgiveness of God's people, complete renewal for God's people. You know, there are, there are many today who believe you have not really experienced what Christianity is about until you've spoken in tongues. And there's one um, um, offshoot of Pentecostalism called Oneness Pentecostalism, which says that you're not even saved unless you've spoken in tongues. It's not true. We've seen the tongues were not that important in the grand scheme of things and weren't even necessary. And besides that, there are many places in the New Testament where people are filled with the Holy Spirit without speaking in tongues. Acts 4 verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit while he speaks to the Jewish council. He doesn't speak to them in tongues. Acts 4 verse 31, the believers are praying. And when they had prayed, it says, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't go on to say, and they spoke in tongues. It says, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And more examples could be given, but the point is, not everyone who received the Holy Spirit spoke in tongues. And even if they did, why the focus on tongues today? Why are people so obsessed with this? Why not expect that also flames of fire and a rushing wind to go with it. The Holy Spirit wasn't even consistent in those days when he gave the gift of tongues. Sometimes he gave it, sometimes he didn't, but when it did happen, it was often at key turning points. Now one of those is the story of, um, in Acts chapter 10, of Peter who brought the gospel to Cornelius. This is something new. Cornelius is a Gentile, he's a centurion, he is not Jewish. Remember that all these people in Acts chapter 2 were Jews. Peter is not Jew, or Cornelius is not Jewish. And, um, and yet he's a believer. But this is something new for Peter. And he would have never baptized Cornelius and his household if these people had not spoken in tongues first. That's obvious from Acts 10 verse 47. When he says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So the tongues came as a kind of a sign of what the Holy Spirit was doing. It was evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work, but that doesn't mean that he was absent when there were no tongues. So people should not insist on tongues as the only evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work somewhere. Or to put it differently, we should not focus on the wrapping on the gift, but the gift itself, which is the Holy Spirit. See, in line with this idea of what does this mean for us today, the Holy Spirit gives you a lot more than just the gift of tongues. That gift of tongues appears to have died out with the apostles, but, but the renewal persists, and that's a message of Pentecost. He gives complete renewal for God's people. They are transformed. They become bold in proclaiming the great works of God. They receive an unusual measure of faith. Stephen, for example, who is described as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They receive comfort. They receive joy. 
For example, in Acts 13, verse 52, it says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom like he did to Stephen. And see, all of these things are no less a miracle than the rest of what the Holy Spirit does. No less a miracle than speaking in tongues. If you get somebody who, who by nature doesn't understand the gospel, who is by nature not bold, and, and who, who, who consistently gets it wrong, like Peter himself, for example, and who's afraid, and who then, someone like that, to then be transformed and to be able to preach the gospel clearly, to have wisdom and eloquence and, and joy in his faith. That's just as much a gift of the Holy Spirit as anything, any of these other signs. See, the tongues were necessary early on as a testimony to draw attention to the content of the message, but they're like the gift wrap. The actual gift was complete forgiveness for God's people and complete renewal for God's people. And that's what God promised to his people in the past. He said in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And that's characteristic of the church with the Holy Spirit. So he promises you renewal. He promises you, sitting here this morning, the power to overcome sin in your life. That is no less a miracle of God than speaking in tongues. So the question was, what was the message of Pentecost for the church today? What's the message of Pentecost for the Free Reformed Church at Mundajong, gathered here together in this first week of June? Well, the same as it was for them. Complete forgiveness for God's people. Complete renewal for God's people. It's the same message that's still here for us today. These are our roots. This is what church is about. Any church that doesn't proclaim these things, any church that doesn't work out the consequences of these things in the preaching, in the sacraments, and church discipline is not a true church. But when you are a part of that, you flourish. When you have the promise of forgiveness, you have peace. When you have the promise of renewal, you have hope. And one day is not enough to work that out. That's why every day needs to, every Sunday needs to have a bit of Pentecost in it. That's part of our DNA, so to speak. And for you too, one day is not enough to work up Pentecost in your life. In fact, your whole life is not enough. And we have this in common with those first converts. They didn't completely understand what was happening. Well, we don't always either, do we? But just like us, they knew they wanted to be a part of it. They knew they needed to be in church, and so do we. This is our family. This is where we belong. This is where God is at work. We want fellowship with each other because we see this thing that has happened to us and that is happening with each other. And it's the most compelling thing that we could possibly imagine, and we want to have a part of it. May many more come to that same realization, and may Pentecost so continue to work out its influence in our church today. Amen.